ETF Prime is hosted by Nature Racing, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. NASDAQ ETFs are always on the leading edge of market quality, execution, and reform. Providing tailored ETF services spanning product development, compliance, trading, market structure support, and unparalleled marketing tools to differentiate, activate, and amplify your brand throughout your product life cycle. Visit our ETF landing page today for high-touch ETF support every step of the way. Now it's time for ETF Prime where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me this week will be Dave Lavelle, Global Head of ETFs at Grayscale Investments, who of course is behind the nearly $15 billion Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, ticker GBTC. Uh, they also offer a number of uh, other digital asset products. They're a clear leader in the space. But as has been well documented on this podcast, Grayscale is currently suing the SEC the SEC, because the SEC has continued denying Grayscale's attempt to convert GBTC into a spot Bitcoin ETF. And so the SEC and Grayscale have now been going back and forth with some initial arguments through these legal briefs. And then oral arguments, I believe, are expected to begin sometime next quarter. Now, while that's been going on, there's also been a lot of discussion recently around Grayscale's parent company, Digital Currency Group, DCG, and the impact of Genesis, who's a uh, crypto lender that just filed for bankruptcy last week because Genesis is also under DCG's umbrella. And so there are some concerns around how that could potentially impact GBTC. There's also been some public campaigning recently from competing fund companies to try and take over GBTC. There is a lot going on here. And so I am going to try and discuss all of this with Dave Lavelle. We'll see exactly what he can speak to, but hopefully you can hear directly from the horse's mouth on some of this stuff. And then if we have a few minutes uh, at the end, I do wanna uh, briefly pivot and discuss Grayscale's future of finance ETF because the entire blockchain or crypto related ETF space is absolutely on fire this year. That, that future of finance ETF is up over 50% so far in January. So we'll hear what's been driving that. Also joining me this week will be Marissa Ansel, Lead Client Portfolio Manager for Thematic Investing at Goldman Sachs Asset Management, who's a nearly $30 billion ETF issuer and our topic will be thematic ETFs. Uh, Goldman offers several actively managed uh, thematic ETFs. And Marissa is going to explain their overall approach to the space. And she'll highlight the potential investment opportunity behind a few of their ETFs, including the Goldman Sachs Future Healthcare Equity ETF, ticker GDOC. Now, to start this week, speaking of thematic investing, I have on the line with me, Roxana Islam, Associate Director of Research at Vetify. We're going to dive into e-commerce ETFs, which I should note that uh, Goldman Sachs does offer an ETF that touches that space with their future consumer equity ETF, ticker GBI. But Roxana and I are going to look at the overall backdrop here with what's been going on with the consumer and inflation. And then we'll get into a, a few specific e-commerce ETFs as well. So let's do that now. 
Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. An area that I've been talking a lot about is Bitcoin versus gold. So right now in the environment that we're in, um, a lot of investors are concerned over those rising rates. Roxana, great having you back on the podcast. Yeah, it's really great to be here. All right. So look, you are our resident expert when it comes to thematic indexes and ETFs. And we're going to look at a, a very interesting category in e-commerce ETFs, which I'll tell listeners, even if you're not interested in this space, I, I've got to tell you, as I started digging into this, there are some really important uh, macro considerations here, just as it pertains to the consumer and the impact of inflation and what's been going on in the economy. But uh, Roxana, let's just start with the overall backdrop, which is that e-commerce is continuing to take market share from traditional brick and mortar retailers. And I, I'd love to have you start by explaining what's been driving that, because I think some people might think, well, you know, it made sense that e-commerce took off during the pandemic, right? Everybody was buying online, but now that things have mostly gotten back to normal, I think some people think, well, that, that should be more beneficial for brick and mortar. So what's been going on here just at a high level? Yeah, so for, so first of all, I, I love talking about this sector. I love e-commerce. I've been following it for years back when I worked as a transportation logistics analyst. And the growth in this segment has just been happening for years, um, long before COVID even happened. So if you look at some of that that public data out there, the U.S. Census Bureau uh, releases some of that quarterly. Um, you know, we saw that e-commerce has been growing at a faster pace than retail sales on a year-over-year basis, basically until uh, basically as far as 4Q 1999. <laughs> so you know, obviously, we saw a lot of that peak during COVID, and you know, that's when many of these investors got excited. Um, but, you know, like with most things, when we see a pull forward of that magnitude, you know, that's not really a sustainable growth rate. So, you know, after COVID, uh, you know, when that growth was nor normalized, e-commerce growth was still positive, but it just grew at a slower pace than total retail sales. So, you know, I think when that happened, it, the space sort of got a little bit less exciting for those that saw it take off during 2020. But, you know, if you really look at it, if you really look at that data, um, you know, penetration of total market share was in the mid 14% range compared to 16% in the pandemic. But that was still like far above those pre-pandemic levels uh, of, that were closer to about, you know, maybe like 11%. So, you know, when, when, I, when I look at this data, you know, first, just to give a little bit of background, I always compare year over year, not sequentially, because, for example, when you're looking at that 4Q data, that includes Christmas shopping. So that's always going to be higher than 3Q. Um, you know, and I always adjust for motor vehicle and gasoline sales, um, not just because it's historically volatile, but that's also not a huge contributor to e-commerce sales in general. So after you make those adjustments, we really saw e-commerce resume that normal pace in, in 2Q22. And since then, it's been growing, um, you know, quite at a fast pace again. And we have 4Q e-commerce data is not really coming out until mid-February, I believe. Um, you know, but we already have that retail sales data from 4Q, and you can look at the non-store retailer segment there and sort of apply an adjustment factor and get an approximation of what you think e-commerce sales will likely be. And it's looking like it's continuing that trend of outpacing retail sales. So I'm estimating personally about 15% of total retail sales in 4Q22 versus 14.5 uh, during 4Q21. And I think that about matches up with what we've been hearing um, about holiday sales. You know, I think the space is going to continue to grow, especially when you consider those consumer preferences. And, you know, that environment that we're in, it's, it's really interesting because obviously, you know, we all know the Internet has penetrated our lives. We're almost too connected. You know, it's easy to pull out a phone or an iPad or even like your, your Apple Watch and, and order something from the Internet. But, you know, we're also in this environment when we still have a good amount of people still working at home. Um, you know, and that, that's sort of like leftover from the pandemic, but I think a lot of that is, is, is a little bit more longer term. Because if you look at how much people are driving now, it, it's, it's quite fascinating because passenger vehicle miles in 2022 um, is still below pre-pandemic levels. And if you look at transit ridership, you know, for public transit, that's almost 40% below those 
levels in early 2020. So people aren't really leaving the house for work as much anymore. So you don't really have people stopping at the mall or at the store on their way home from work. We're on the internet all day and it's just easier to buy something online because we're not already out there. And, you know, it's not just the people working from home. We're also seeing this in the more price sensitive consumers. You know, inflation has shown some signs of moderating, but, you know, there's still a lot of pressure on the consumer. You know, people are, are making memes about those egg prices. Um, you know, um, rental prices are still pretty high. Mortgage prices are still pretty high. So there's, there's been a lot of pressure, and, and it, it's really eating into more, the more price-sensitive uh, consumer. So first of all, people would rather not spend a lot of money on gas, right? They'd, they'd rather stay at home if they could to save that money. And then... I think what's even more interesting is you're having people um, become more strategic in their purchases, and it's actually easier to do that online, um, you know, where you can sit there and you can compare prices and discounts on multiple stores and plan out what exactly you're going to buy. Um, And I think another interesting point to make there has been credit card spending. Um, You know, we've seen these charts about credit card debt increasing, um, you know, maybe 15 to 20% over the year. But I think what's really interesting is if you look at credit card late payments, it's, it's not really as bad as you think. It's, it's about the same as it's always been. So it, it makes me wonder if people are using credit cards as part of their strategy, maybe opening those accounts in order to take advantage of, of those sign-up bonus, bonuses or those store credit card discounts. So, you know, it's just really an interesting environment we're in because people, you know, they obviously still want to buy things and, you know, the wallets are a little bit tighter. So they're looking for, for different ways and different strategies in order to buy things. So I think this is why e-commerce has been, has been taking off quite a bit compared to total retail sales. Yeah. And when I mentioned macro considerations at the top, that's really what caught my attention was this relationship between inflation and the, the consumer in e-commerce, because as you, you mentioned, if you think about this, consumers are more price sensitive. And so they do become more strategic about uh, how and, 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 and when they spend their time and money. And so it would make sense that that could be beneficial for the e-commerce category as, as a whole. So, you know, maybe obvious to some people, but I, I really like that interplay there. Um, Roxana, something else that I found interesting about this space is that Obviously, people are familiar with companies like Amazon and Etsy, eBay, DoorDash. But I'd love to have you talk more about a company like Walmart, who I think many still view as that traditional brick-and-mortar retailer. But they're increasingly expanding into e-commerce. So can you talk more about that and perhaps what that means for the e-commerce space overall? Yeah, so I think... You know, it's interesting because we, we just talked about consumer behavior, and I think a lot of people sort of talk about that when they talk about e-commerce. But I think it's also very much driven by um, the way retailers behave as well. And I think there was this misconception that it was e-commerce versus brick and mortar, and it was sort of an either-or situation. And the fact is that they're more complementary to each other. And many large retailers, like Walmart, for instance, they realize this, and that they have to be flexible, and they have to move toward a more uh, omni-channel strategy. And, and omni-channel is just a fancy logistics term that basically just refers to integrating online shopping with in, in-person shopping. For example, um, you know, you have consumers now that buy online, and then they pick up in-store. Or they buy in-store, and then they do the returns online. So now there's really more of an integration between the two. And, you know, that trend has also been going on for many years. But I think, um, you know, many of these <clears throat> retailers, the pandemic really made them more aware of that because, um, you know, they couldn't really be open to consumers. So they had to maybe do the buy online, pick up in-store thing. So if you look at these large retailers like Walmart, you know, Walmart has previously stated um, you know, in, in the earnings calls, transcripts, et cetera, that they didn't fully appreciate how much customers needed e-commerce at first. So, you know, they've been growing that part of their business for the past few quarters in line with the total U.S. e-commerce growth, which is something I think that, you know, helps a much larger company in general. Because if you think about the steps you need to take to modernize your operations at a retailer, you know, whether it's e-commerce or brick and mortar, a lot of those steps are going to be the same. You're going to need better inventory tracking. Um, you're going to need we- better website data so that customers can see item availability, your discounts, or price comparisons. 
And all of that can easily be translated into e-commerce channels. So it's a really natural step in the evolution of retail. Yeah, such an interesting example. Um, Roxana, one thing I'm curious about, you know, already here, you've mentioned some of the positive drivers within the e-commerce space overall. But if I look at an ETF like, say, iBuy, the Amplify Online Retail ETF, that was down 56% last year. Or if we look at uh, iShip, which I know S Network provides the index for that, the First Trust S Network e-commerce ETF, that was down 34% last year. Was that because the uh, space just got ahead of itself valuation-wise during the pandemic? Or what was happening here? Because given you know what you've already laid out, things seem fairly bullish overall, and you like to think stocks are forward-looking. So w- what happened last year? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, a lot of it was the fact that uh, investors had started to become sort of disenchanted with the e-commerce space. You know, they weren't seeing those high growth rates anymore. It, it just, it wasn't as, it wasn't as popular anymore. And, you know, another major, major factor is that a lot of these companies are either tech stocks or at least tech oriented. And I think investors are also, you know, very cautious um, with these sort of higher risk, growthier tech investments last year. And then, you know, we were also in an environment where we had lower ad revenue, which was hurting some of the tech companies. And, you know, even if these companies had higher top-line growth driven by that e-commerce demand, you, know, you also have to look at the margins. And a lot of them were experiencing higher costs. You know, you had some of these micro-factors um, weighing in on that overall e-commerce demand. And so that was sort of weighing in on the space. Yeah, and I'll note things have started on a, a bit of a better foot so far this year. If you look at iBuy, that's up over 20%. iShip is up uh, 11%. So, you know, clearly, at least so far this year, th- things have been uh, more positive. Um, in terms of ETFs in the space overall, so we, we just mentioned iBuy <laughs> and iShip, but there are a number of options here. There's the ProShares Online Retail ETF, ticker ONLN. Uh, GlobalX has an e-commerce ETF, ticker eBiz. Goldman Sachs, who will join me later. I mentioned they have GBuy, which is their future consumer equity ETF. And there are uh, others out there. What do you think should be some of the key considerations if investors do want to look at this space? Yeah, so, you know, I think the good thing with e-commerce is that you have a lot of options as an investor. Because it's a category that I think is really hard to sort of categorize it in one bucket. It's really a very much a multi-sector theme. So it isn't just necessarily a consumer pointing and clicking a mouse on the internet. You know, it's everything involving a retailer's inventory, its supply chain, um, its website, and then there's the consumer clicking the mouse and ordering the product. But then there's also getting that product to the consumer once they click that mouse and ordered it. So, you know, as an investor, there are multiple ways to access this theme from an ETF standpoint. Um, you know, obviously, you have the broader e-commerce ETFs, you know, that are relatively diversified. Like, you know, we mentioned ISHP. It holds online marketplaces, online retailers, uh, content navigation companies, and even e-commerce infrastructure like delivery companies, you know, and, and that's like FedEx and UPS. And those, those sort of companies are actually really essential in e-commerce because, um, you know, they specialize in that sort of last mile delivery um, when they take products direct to the customer. Um, and then you can look at, you know, the ETFs. You, you also mentioned, like, there's iBuy and there's ONLN, which, you know, those basically focus on those Internet companies that take those direct Internet purchases. Basically what I was saying before about the consumer, you know, pointing and clicking the mouse. And then you can get even deeper than that. And you can look at ETFs like DTRE, which hold logistics REITs. And those are basically the warehouses used within the e-commerce supply chain that sort of serve as the distribution centers where they keep the inventory and then distribute directly to the customer. So there's a lot of different ways to approach this. So I think that's sort of what makes the space more interesting to an investor who's, who's interested, you know, because they have more than one option. They have more than one way to access the strategy. That's an excellent summary. I mean, you hit on some of the high points that I saw as I looked under the hood of these ETFs. I mean, some of these own, for example, Walmart, which we talked about earlier. Yeah. <laughs> uh, some of them don't, right? Uh, you mentioned the package delivery companies, companies like UPS and FedEx. Uh, I, I thought a good one, logistics REITs that, that you hit on. You, you really have to look under the hood because there are some, uh, some pretty significant differences here. Um, any quick thoughts on ETFs focused on international stocks or something like 
the uh, EMQQ, Emerging Markets, Internet and E-Commerce, ETF. I know iShip has a global uh, presence. Just any thoughts on those? Yeah, just, you know, e-commerce is a very, very global concept. And I think, you know, I I personally talk about it from a U.S. perspective just because it's easier for investors to relate and understand. Um, But, you know, China actually has a larger e-commerce presence than the U.S. You know, they have, you know, we probably heard of Alibaba and JD.com. You know, they have a a ton of e-commerce websites over there. And, you know, other emerging market countries, if if you think about it, they have a lot of growth potential from an e-commerce perspective. Um, because if you think about how far inter- internet penetration still has to go in those countries, you know they they do have a lot of room for growth. So I think international ETFs are are, are a pretty good good way to take advantage of the space globally. Roxana, just a couple minutes left here before I let you go. Uh, I, I want to switch gears, and I'm going to have you help me build a little bridge to my next segment. Uh, <laughs> okay. I'll be joined in just a moment by Grayscale's Dave Lavelle. Uh, who, as I'm sure you're aware, they offer a future of finance ETF, ticker GFOF. And Dave probably won't like this, but I'm going to broadly lump that into the uh, the blockchain ETF space, right? Crypto-related ETFs. And if you look so far this year, you, you probably heard me at the top, that space has taken off. Something like GFOF, that's up over 50%. And I'm just curious, as someone who follows this category pretty closely, what are you seeing underneath the surface here? Is there anything that's that's been sticking out to you that's driving this type of performance so far this year? Yeah, so I think there's there's going to be there's already a lot of renewed interest in crypto, and I think there's going to be some more because if you look at the top ten best performing ETFs this year so far, five of those half half of them five out of ten are crypto related ETFs, which is pretty impressive. Um, so you know a lot of that is driven by by macro factors, like you mentioned. You know people, uh, you know that that inflation. Signs of inflation moderating, um, maybe a little bit less aggressive of a Fed. So it's a lot of macro factors and the fact that consumers are a little bit less risk adverse than they were last year. But I also think specifically the space has matured. Uh, investors and analysts are becoming smarter about some of these bad actors and becoming a little bit more realistic about what sort of returns to to expect. You know, we can't obviously expect those high returns that we saw a couple of years ago. So I think we'll see some interesting things happen um, in 2023 for crypto. Yeah. And I think obviously it helps. I mean, you look at Bitcoin and some of the other the larger cryptos out there, they've had a nice bounce. Obviously, it was a very brutal year in 2022. But I think some people like to look at the blockchain ETFs is a uh, quote-unquote leverage play on crypto, sort of how gold mining stocks are with gold, right? If, if gold's up, sometimes you'll see the gold miners up more than that. It's like a leverage play. I think some people think that's similar for the blockchain ETF space, but clearly the underlying cryptos have been a driver as well. But Roxana, we'll have to leave it there. Excellent stuff this week. So great having you back on the uh, podcast. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thank you. That was Roxana Islam, Associate Director of Research at Vetify. Is it time to amplify your growth exposure? Blockchain technology continues to fuel innovation, removes friction, and builds trust. See how blockchain can help drive value in supply chain, healthcare, retail, financial services, and more. Discover Amplify BLOK, an actively managed ETF that provides broad exposure to companies involved in blockchain technology. When growth matters to you, explore Amplify ETFs. Unlock at BLOKETF.com. Investing risk includes principal loss. Narrowly focused investments typically exhibit higher volatility. Blockchain does not invest directly in blockchain technology, but invests in companies actively involved in the development and utilization of blockchain technology. Blockchain technology may never develop optimized transactional processes that lead to realized economic returns for any company in which the fund invests. Visit AmplifyETFs.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully. Amplify ETFs are distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. I'm now joined by Dave Lavelle, Global Head of ETFs at Grayscale Investments, who, of course, offers the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, ticker GBTC, nearly $15 billion in that product. Grayscale is also the world's largest digital asset manager overall, currently 18 investment products, some $20 billion in assets. And Dave is now on the line with me from New York. 
Dave, always a pleasure. Thanks for taking the time. Nate, how are we doing? You know, I was thinking we should open up by singing Happy Birthday to Spy. What do you think? You know? <laughs> hey, I love it. 30 years old. It's hard to believe. I feel old. <laughs> I mean, I mean, let's be honest. We both owe a professional debt of gratitude to Spy, don't we? And those that work to make it a reality? No question. Uh, <laughs> I, I, yes, I owe a huge debt of gratitude towards a Spy. And, you, you know, it's funny. I, I was looking back. So, you, you know, you speak about uh, time and, 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 you know, 30 years feels like a long time ago. Believe it or not, Dave, it's been about a year since you were last on this podcast. And I would say quite a bit has happened in the uh, crypto space since then, and certainly with Grayscale. I think I've said before, a year in crypto is like a decade in traditional markets. <laughs> I mean, Nate, you and I saw each other at, a, at an event in the middle of December, um, and I think I've aged three years since I saw you. So, you know, and it has nothing to do with making sure the holidays happen and getting through <laughs> the new year. So, uh, yeah, no, it's been, listen, it's exciting. Um, and, you know, it's funny when you think about SPY coming to market, it, it came to market in 1993 and it was something that was envisioned, you know, after the crash in 87. And it took whatever is that six years to kind of make it a reality. And that type of innovation with ETFs, look, we're, we're, it's the same thing. We're innovating in ETFs with just a different asset class now. And it takes time to get through the regulatory process. It gets time to, you know, make sure that, um, you know, the appropriate disclosures are there. And so we're kind of going through a similar process, just a different asset class. But it's it's super exciting. Uh, and yeah, a lot has transpired since uh, I was last on the pod. Okay, so that's a perfect segue. Let, let's start with this lawsuit Grayscale filed against the SEC. And I think many listeners know the story here, which is that yeah. the SEC continued denying Grayscale's attempt to convert the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust into a spot Bitcoin ETF. Yeah. And at the end of, I believe, June of last year, Grayscale initiated these legal proceedings. Just to reset here, high level for people who maybe haven't followed this yep. quite as closely, just explain the background on this lawsuit. Yeah, so we, if we go all the way back to kind of 2017, that was kind of the first iteration of a number of asset managers, including ourselves, attempting to file for spot Bitcoin ETFs under the 33 Act. Um, Kind of fast forward, you know, many of those, um, you know, proposals were denied. Um, in our case, we withdrew our application, knowing that the SEC wasn't ready to really consider that or approve it. But fast forward to 2021, the SEC started to express an openness to consider a futures-based Bitcoin ETF under the 40 Act. And that was citing some additional protections under the 40 Act and, you know, some of the innovations that came along with the ETF rule in 2015, allowing for futures-based products in the 40 Act. And, you know, so in late 2021, the first futures-based Bitcoin ETF commenced trading. And on that very day, um, you know, we filed our application for a spot-based Bitcoin ETF. And, you know, that was very deliberate. If the SEC was now, you know, comfortable with the futures-based product, it was our belief, it was then, it continues to be now, that if the SEC is comfortable with the futures-based Bitcoin, you know, ETF, that it should be amenable and comfortable with the spot-based product. You know, Nate, we've discussed this at, at length and at nauseum, but if you're good with the derivative, you should be good with the underlying asset. They are, you know, absolutely and undeniably inextricably tied. No, and I think, you know, I've been a broken record here. The SEC keeps talking about these concerns regarding fraud and manipulation in the underlying spot market. But these underlying futures that are held by Bitcoin futures ETFs, guess what? They get their pricing from the exact same crypto exchanges <laughs> as a spot Bitcoin ETF would. So I would argue, I mean, if there's fraud and manipulation <laughs> there, it's going to impact futures-based ETFs yeah. as well. I mean, I think, you know, I, I just can't, that's the one area, and I know that's really the nexus of the suit, that I just can't get my uh, my head around. Okay, so yeah. since Grayscale filed the suit, I know there have been these briefs that have been submitted back and forth, right, between Grayscale yep. and SEC. What can you tell us about that process? Well, hot, hot off the press. Yesterday, um, you know, the D.C. Court of Appeals um, delivered the actual oral argument schedule in the lawsuit. Um, and so... You know, Grayscale, who's represented by Don Verrilli, um, and then, of course, the SEC attorneys are going to be heard in front of the courts on March 7th, 2023. So that represents kind of the oral portion of the arguments. And what has transpired uh, to date has been the written um, you know, set of arguments that have been presented to the courts. Um, so the, the lawsuit is progressing, you know, as designed and pretty swiftly, and we're excited about that. 
And we ultimately end up having a decision, you know, kind of at the latest in the fall of 2023. Um, but given that the oral argument schedule has been set um, in kind of that early March time frame, we could actually get a final decision sooner than that. Um, but, but most recently, you know, prior to this news yesterday, Grayscale, you know, filed its reply brief on January 13th. And, you know, that really addresses all of the counterpoints made by, by the SEC. So we put our opening arguments out in written form. SEC replies to those, you know, arguments. And then we have the opportunity to reply to that. So that reply um, was submitted on, on January 13th. And we're, um, you know, listen, we're, we're really confident in the arguments that we have. And we're uh, excited to uh, continue to push this, push this process forward. The, the, the beauty of it, Nate, is that given that this is in the courts, it's, you know, based in statute. And so, you know, while there's a little bit of ambiguity around when the dates are going to fall, um, we know that, you know, this is something that is going to, you know, going to, you know, come to the courts um, and a decision will, will ultimately be, be reached. And we're excited about that. In terms of uh, counterpoints by the SEC and perhaps, right. you know, how the courts will view this, you know, it's interesting. I'm seeing a lot of people who are suggesting the SEC is now, somehow uh, vindicated or justified and not approving a spot ETF because of everything we've seen in crypto over the past year, right? FTX, Three Arrows Capital, even Genesis, which I I do want to ask you about. Uh, I saw a tweet from CNBC's Jim Cramer last week where he was saying, see, the SEC was right. All of the shows, they shouldn't have allowed a spot Bitcoin ETF. Any comments on that? So so first things first, um, at the end of the day, again, back to statute, this is a case around our belief that the SEC, you know, denied our application and in doing so violated the Administrative Procedures Act. The Administrative Procedures Act is the act that governs, you know, governmental agencies in ensuring that they treat like pieces of business alike. And we believe that that is not the case given that they have approved a futures-based product and they have denied our application for a spot product. Um, so that's the first first thing that I would I would say. Um, and again, like it, it, it bears mentioning and kind of reiterating, we're looking to pull, you know, our product and pull crypto further into the regulatory perimeter. And products like spot ETFs would, you know, really open up access to Bitcoin. Um, you know, that would be in a, you know in a more highly regulated wrapper and environment. And so, you know, um, I actually saw that your, your response to that, to that tweet and that that was, <laughs> you, you actually took, took a, a, different, a different approach and actually kind of diametrically opposed and said, no, it's actually, you know, totally, you're totally opposed to what, what, what Jim had mentioned. Um, but what I would say is that, you know, certainly a lot has happened in the crypto industry since we first filed. Um, a lot of market turbulence, drawdowns, inflation, interest rates, all sorts of extraneous factors that um, are either in the crypto market or outside the crypto market. It's been a super dynamic time. Uh, but our arguments are the same, and it's common sense arguments, and they're compelling legal arguments, and it's a legal process that's based in statute. And despite how you may feel about the SEC's reluctance to approve a spot Bitcoin product, um, or, you know, current political or social views towards crypto, you know, the reason why we have a court system is to come to determinations that are based on, you know, settling questions around law. So that means that, you know, the events, you know, that have happened, you know, 3AC, Celsius, Voyager, FTX, Alameda, like BlockFi, DCG, Genesis, all these, Gemini, like all of these things are not relevant to what is in front of the court, which is, we believe the SEC has acted arbitrarily and capriciously and discriminated against us in denying the conversion of GBTC into a spot ETF. And that's not to, to, to minimize some of the, you know, really terrible things that have happened in the marketplace. Um, you know, we don't, we don't, you know, <laughs> We feel we feel awful about that. And look, you and I have been around this industry long enough to see different instances of fraud. Um, that's bad, and that decreases confidence in the marketplace. But in in this particular case, we are talking about the merits of our desire to convert GBTC into an ETF. We are talking about 
the Administrative Procedures Act. We are talking about whether or not the SEC was, you know, um, acting within their, you know, rights to deny this product. And, you know, we believe uh, that we have a very strong case and we believe that we're, we're, you know, we're being discriminated against. Dave, I want to move on here, but, yeah. uh, you know, obviously investors can access Bitcoin futures, ETFs. A- any thoughts on how those have performed thus far? Because when these first launched, I-, I was certainly out there saying, I can't believe the SEC approved these things yeah. and not a spot Bitcoin ETF, because we know with near certainty, the futures-based products are not going to track the spot price of Bitcoin. But if you look, right. they've done a pretty good job so far. Any quick thoughts on what we've seen? So, first of all, like, we're not anti-futures, <laughs> you know, based, um, you know, Bitcoin ETFs. Um, that was a great, that was a great innovation in the market. And that's, um, that's been a, been a good step in the right direction towards uh, a spot product. Um, and look, the Bitcoin futures products continue to behave as designed, which is really good for the market. Um, I think we've all debated kind of the, the, the structural dr- excuse me, the structural drawbacks relating to the need to rebalance portfolios and roll the futures exposure as, you know, the futures expiry approaches. And look, the reality that the market has kind of been on a downtrend minimizes some of those, you know, um, you know, kind of uh, exaggerated, um, you know, underperformance that can happen when you have an asset class that's really on a, on a you know, prolonged kind of uptrend. Um, so the, the, the products are behaving as designed and, and, that, and that, that's great. Look, you and I have talked about this also. History has proven that in instances where a commodity can be reliably stored, the spot-based ETP is overwhelmingly preferred by investors of all shapes and sizes. And, you know, that's from the self-directed retail investor to the largest institution, um, you know, largest institutions in the world. And we really believe that the same will be true for Bitcoin. Um, when you have a commodity that's not able to be reliably or easily stored wheat, cattle, oil, you know, investors really settle for the futures version of the ETP. And so right now, in the absence of a spot Bitcoin product being permitted by the SEC in the U.S. market, investors are settling for the futures-based ETP, but we, we, we feel really strongly upon approval. Um, you know, GBTC's conversion to a spot Bitcoin ETP um, is going to result in investors really flocking towards the spot product. All right, Dave, with our remaining time, uh, let's get to the gauntlet portion of our conversation. I feel like every time you're on the podcast, we do this little dance, right, where I have some questions that I have a feeling might not be your favorite, but I know these are questions on listeners' minds, so I, I have to try and ask them. And as always, you do get a, uh, a get-out-of-jail-free card that you can use. And by the way, I do think it's important to point out that you could very easily just decline to come on this podcast. You, you have way more important things to do. And I, I really appreciate the fact that you always show up. You do these interviews. Uh, oh. you, you know, to me, Dave, that says something. Nate, well, hey, Nate, look, listeners we're, we're can draw. Running, I mean, yeah, I appreciate yeah. I appreciate the disclaimer. But we I mean, we're we're I mean, we are championing championing transparency. Um, we are championing an open dialogue with our investors, with the community, um, you know, with regulators. Uh, so, so you have a, a well-respected voice and, and it's a privilege to be able to come on and answer the question. So we, we welcome the question. Let's, let's, let's yeah. go. No, I, I appreciate that. And we are a little short on time. So uh, I, I know it's tough with nuance, but maybe 30 seconds to a minute for each of these go. questions. Again, you can pass. So, okay. First, uh, look, there are some concerns swirling around digital currency group yep. solvency, right? Of course, Digital Currency Group is a parent company of Grayscale. Yep. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're the parent company of Genesis. The question I have for you is, if something were to happen to DCG, are yep. there any risks to the Grayscale Bitcoin trust itself? Uh, very simple. No. Um, business as usual at Grayscale right now. We operate independently with our own management team, financial risk management, protocols, legal, compliance oversight, all of that. We're confident that, you know, Genesis's, you know, Genesis Global Capital's voluntary, you know, Chapter 11 filing, not going to impact the operation of Grayscale's business uh, or any of our Grayscale products, including GBTC. So there you have it. Okay. Another question I keep hearing is, obviously, GBTC converting to an ETF would solve the yeah. discount problem. But why can't Grayscale just seek 
Reg Emerly from the SEC and start offering share redemption now, which theoretically would start closing that, you know, 40% discount. Why not pursue Reg Emerly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so this, is, this, is, this is a tough one in 30 seconds, but you ready? As GBTC sponsor, Grayscale's application to convert GBTC to a spot ETF is, all right, is Grayscale seeking Reg M relief. There have been a lot of people in a lot of different public forums claiming their kind of Reg M expertise. Um, but part of any ETF application includes an application for Reg M relief. And this is the most critical component of an ETF. And it's providing that necessary framework for arbitrage that keeps the ETF trading right at its net asset value. Um, you know, tender offers and other, you know, kind of things that have been, been purported in, in, again, multiple public forums require regulatory approval as well, um, as well as approval from, from shareholders. So there would be a number of different limitations of how a tender offer would work and how it could potentially be carried out by GBTC. Um, pricing, type of payment, timing. Um, so anyone who's claiming or declaring that GBTC can just simply redeem shares today is most likely not a lawyer, not a Reg M expert, and does not understand the complexities of securities law, um, in addition to tender offer rules. It's complex stuff, um, and converting to an ETF is getting Reg M relief. Okay, so on that note, another question, and, and I'll just tell you, maybe it's a little low budget of me asking this, but again, Dave, this is something that I hear, so I'm going to ask you it. Yeah. Some people believe Grayscale's Bitcoin ETF campaign is yeah. all marketing. In other words, the reason you're pursuing a spot Bitcoin ETF and going through all of this legal process <laughs> is to, to give the appearance that you're supporting right. investors' interests. But, but really, the company is better off financially. If a Bitcoin right. ETF doesn't happen right, you can just continue collecting the annual management fee. Investors right. can't leave the fund right now. How would you respond to all that? Um, well, look, I would first say it's not surprising that people are questioning things generally. Um, there's a lot of trust and confidence that has been damaged fraud in the marketplace in any context resulting in investors losing money is, is really unfortunate and really terrible. And you and I have seen this before. Um, and so we're, I think we're both sensitive to that. Um, and it's going to take time to rebuild that confidence. But as I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, ETF conversion has always been the goal since 2013. This product was structured to mimic GLD as a 33-act Delaware grantor trust so that it could be converted into an exchange-traded product um, and so, you know, any, uh, you know, any, any sort of suggestion that we're just, um, engaging the PR stunt is really unfounded. And we're going to continue to fight for our investors and for the Bitcoin community and convert this product into an ETP because, you know, that's the best thing. Okay. Last question I have, and, and yeah. this is where the backdrop of the questions I've already asked. Yeah. Any, any thoughts on these other fund companies that are, uh, public publicly campaigning to take yeah. over GBTC as fund sponsor. And, and I'll just tell you, from my perspective, this does appear to be simply a marketing play by these firms. I just don't see the path to how they could yeah. actually accomplish this. I, I've tweeted that out, unless there yeah. are some enormous financial backers that come along. But what, what do you think about these uh, sort of public plots to take over GBTC? So this is pretty cut and dry. These are meritless claims. And with all due respect, they're ill-informed and they're baseless. All right, this distracts from what's in the best interest of shareholders, which is getting this product converted into an ETF. So Grayscale has absolutely no intention of stepping down as sponsor of GBTC, nor any of our other investment products. And for anybody who is led to believe otherwise, or flat out believes otherwise, I would recommend you review the publicly available trust agreement. The language is spelled out in plain English. Um, you know, according to our public filings, Grayscale must voluntarily bring forth any proposal for change. Um, and there's, there's no way for, for any shareholders, regardless of their ownership stake, um, to remove Grayscale um, as a sponsor. Well, Dave, we're a little short on time, so we are going to have to leave it there. We're going to have to have you back on to talk about the Grayscale Future of Finance ETF, ticker GFOF, which, by the way, is up over 50% year to date. But again, I really do appreciate your, your candidness. I, I appreciate that you show up and do these interviews. You know, I always like to let listeners draw their own conclusions, but uh, I think it says something that you're here. But again, great having you back on the podcast. Uh, thank you for joining me this week. Thanks so much, Nate. Let's not make it in a year before I before I come back and visit again, all right? <laughs> For sure. That was uh, Dave Lavelle, Global Head of ETFs at Grayscale. 
Hey folks, Dave Nodig from Vetify here. You know, as a financial futurist, I'm supposed to be looking ahead. And what I'm looking ahead to is the second annual exchange ETF conference. It's right around the corner. We'll be back in Miami Beach, Florida, February 5th through February 8th. It's going to be the largest gathering of financial advisors in the whole community. We're hard at work making sure it's going to be an experience you're not going to forget with incredible content, great networking opportunities, and most importantly, a chance to really connect with a community of advisors as real people. I mean, after all, this is supposed to be about you. We had a great first year in 2022. We're super excited to show you how we're taking this whole idea of an event to the next level next year in 2023. We want to hang out with ETF Prime listeners in particular. So go ahead and head to exchangeetf.com and you can use the code PRIME to get a discounted advisor ticket. And that's good until the end of the year. So we hope you'll join us. Thanks. My last guest this week, certainly not least, is Marissa Ansel, Lead Client Portfolio Manager for Thematic Investing at Goldman Sachs Asset Management, who currently offers 32 ETFs, about $27 billion in assets. And Marissa is now joining me from New York. Marissa, it's a pleasure. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Nate. Great to be here. All right. So we're going to look at several actively managed thematic ETFs. But before we do that, I'd love to hear more about your specific role, because I think that actually gets into GSAM's capabilities and the thematic ETF space and sort of how you view the world of thematics overall. So let's start there. Tell us more about your current role. Sure. Happy to. Um, so as you mentioned, Nate, uh, I'm the lead client portfolio manager for thematic investing uh, in the fundamental equity group at Goldman Sachs Asset Management. Um, and just to give you some context, uh, the fundamental equity business manages approximately $90 billion uh, of assets. Uh, that is on behalf of clients around the world, from individual investors to the world's largest institutions, such as pension funds and sovereign wealth funds. Um, we've got more than 100 investment professionals based uh, all around the world in nine different countries. Um, they've got around 15 years uh, of experience on average um, and speak collectively more than 20 different languages. So all of that to say, it's a really deep and very, very experienced team. Um, and all of these people are, are really experts in their sectors and in their geographies. Um, and they're conducting proprietary research on companies with the ultimate goal of identifying the best stock opportunities for our portfolios. With respect to um, thematic specifically, we manage uh, just over $14 billion in thematic equity strategies. And that's across a whole range of different vehicles, uh, including ETFs, mutual funds, uh, and also separate accounts. Okay, so you reside within the fundamental equity business. Just explain how you ultimately interface with the ETF business at Goldman Sachs Asset Management. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so we're very focused um, here at Goldman Sachs on constantly innovating, um, you know, to deliver our clients the right investment solutions in the right wrappers. Um, and in 2021, we launched a suite of five actively managed thematic ETFs called the Goldman Sachs Future ETFs, which invest in companies aligned with key long-term secular growth themes, such as tech innovation, changing consumer preferences, healthcare innovation, and the climate transition, um, really to help our clients get on the right side of these very key disruptive trends. Um, we've been managing similar strategies and other vehicles for actually quite a number of years, um, but we launched our U.S.-listed ETFs to give investors here in the U.S access to, to Goldman Sachs Asset Management's investment expertise in the, you know, easy to trade, transparent, and, and relatively more tax efficient wrapper uh, of an ETF. And uh, each of the future ETFs seeks to provide exposure to a different theme. Um, we are looking for great companies that are well managed, um, that are on the right side of disruption, uh, and of course, seeking to buy them when they're trading at less than, you know, what we think that they're worth. Um, we also think it's really important that these portfolios are global, um, and we actively hunt for opportunities all around the world, um, across both developed and emerging markets, and across the entire uh, market cap spectrum. Okay, so what I thought we might do, Marissa, is well, let's start a bit higher level, and then we can get into some specific themes. And is, I thought about sure. this, you know, last year, 
was obviously a very tough one for equities, in particular when you look at higher growth stocks and some of the companies that are often found in thematic ETFs that focus on innovation. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about what drove that and and perhaps what you see moving forward? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Great question. Um, So, you know, let's start it by looking at what happened last year. um, And then we'll kind of discuss, you know, where we are now and uh, our outlook going forward. So, you know, last year, we really saw a repricing of risk assets, uh, obviously, including equities. Um, and a reset in what investors were willing to pay for growth, frankly. Uh, We saw a big rotation from uh, growth stocks to value. Um, So, you know, globally, uh, value stocks were down about 10% uh, for the year, whereas growth-oriented stocks were down three times more than that, so at around 30%. And then within that growth cohort, actually the fastest-growing, the most innovative companies were the ones that got punished the hardest. Um, you know, why was that? Really for two reasons. Number one, because they are the ones that are most sensitive to higher interest rates, um, because basically investors are paying now for cash flows expected, you know, very far into the future. And number two, they were arguably coming off the most elevated uh, valuations as a starting point. You know, looking back, um, you know, our ETFs actually proved to be pretty much, pretty um, significantly more resilient uh, through last year than, you know, most other thematic ETFs. Um, and I think that was really down to, you know, how selective we are, um, you know, in terms of our bottom-up approach. We have a very, very strong valuation discipline. Um, and we're also very, very careful about buying unprofitable companies. So we have very, very limited exposure to um, unprofitable companies in the future ETF. So typically it might be, you know, a couple of names that are less than 5% uh, of each ETF. Um, versus some of our, you know, competitors, um, you know, have more than 50% uh, of the ETF in unprofitable companies. And I think, you know, those are really the ones that got um, punished the most um, last year. Oh, okay, kind so of, what, do you, uh, yeah, what do you think moving forward then? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, in terms of where we are now, you know, by the end of last year, uh, looking at kind of the forward uh, 12-month uh, price-to-earnings multiple for sort of innovation-oriented equities, Um, that multiple had fallen by 47% uh, from its peak in February 2021. Um, So an absolutely huge correction uh, in that multiple. Um, And currently, you know, these stocks are trading at less than their 10-year average. Uh, And of course, certain stocks, certain themes within that are trading at an even bigger discount. Um, You know, what's interesting is that actually, you know, these themes, um, you know, some of the ones that I just mentioned, these are very, very long-term, multi-decade secular growth themes. So they haven't changed. They haven't gone away. Um, You know, we were really excited about them a couple of years ago before the market sell off. Um, And frankly, we're just as excited, if not even more excited about them now, um, because, you know, we we truly believe that actually um, investors now have the opportunity to to get exposure to, you know, these long term, uh, very disruptive secular growth themes, uh, but frankly, at a much more reasonable price. Um, than, you know, uh, a couple of years ago. Okay, so as we start thinking about the Goldman Sachs Asset Management Active Thematic ETF lineup overall, you just offered a great higher level overview. Are there any specific areas that you're uh, particularly excited about moving forward? Yeah, great question. Um, You know, one of the big advantages of being an active manager is that we can try to take advantage when there's, you know, an indiscriminate sell-off in the market, as we had last year. Uh, We really try to look through the noise and and kind of identify great companies that are well-run, that have solid balance sheets, um, significant growth opportunities ahead of them, and, and of course, are, in our view, uh, mispriced. So, you know, a couple of examples that I might highlight here. So, number one, uh, I would say tech innovation uh, is an area that we are really excited about, um, and particularly the parts of the tech universe that actually often get overlooked by other investors. Um, You know, one of the biggest disconnects that we see in tech is actually where most investors are exposed, which typically uh, is very concentrated in the U.S. mega cap tech names, versus where we actually see the best opportunities going forward, um, which tends to be further down the market cap spectrum and and also outside of the U.S., in in fact. Um, Because in other words, we're looking for the future tech leaders. Um, and so, you know, one of the areas that I would say um, is worth mentioning within tech is, is software. So software as a service companies. Um, but, you know, it's not a one-size-all, um, you know, space. 
Um, so, you know, we own different types of software companies, uh, obviously for diversification purposes. So, you know, we do own uh, some leading edge cybersecurity names such as, uh, you know, Palo Alto here in the U.S. or Venus Tech in China. Um, the number and complexity of cyber attacks continues to grow exponentially, uh, which continues to drive demand uh, for these companies. We own a company like a HubSpot um, that is helping other businesses, in their case, you know, small and, and medium-sized enterprises uh, to digitize. And, and, and then finally, um, you know, maybe one other example I'd give you is uh, software companies that actually make software for other software developers, um, you know, to help them write code and design uh, new apps. So I'll give you a fun fact here. The International Data Corporation predicts that 750 million new apps will be created over the next three years. And that is more than the total number of apps that have been created over the past 40 years uh, combined, uh, which is pretty, uh, pretty impressive. Um, so, you know, companies like uh, Australia's Atlassian, as a good, you know, as an example, uh, may benefit from this. And then, you know, you, may, you, um, you asked an interesting question, kind of marrying, you know, where do we see the opportunity, uh, but also kind of, you know, valuations uh, being compelling as well. And I'd say that from a valuation standpoint, you know, the fastest growing software companies really saw multiples decline by more than 70% uh, from their peak in, in early 2021. And so this kind of, you know, in our view, really presents an opportunity uh, for investors to kind of access you know, some of the fastest growing, most disruptive parts of the tech universe for, you know, what in essence is, a, in our view, a relatively small premium. Uh, and then maybe uh, the, the other area I would highlight here, if I've got a, a couple more minutes, um, is healthcare. Uh, because there, are, there is so much innovation happening in the healthcare space right now, you know, from, you know, gene therapy to um, innovative technologies that allow us to treat things in a minimally invasive way to new game-changing drugs that, uh, you know, are going to allow us to treat, um, you know, big diseases like Alzheimer's um, that we haven't been able to treat, uh, you know, up until now. Um, and, uh, you know, we own companies um, in this space, you know, all sorts of, um, you know, different market caps, you know, from like a shockwave medical um, that's basically developed uh, technology that uses sonic waves to break up calcium deposits in, in your arteries. Um, you know, to help reduce uh, the risk of heart attack and stroke, um, all the way up to, you know, an intuitive surgical, which is um, the world's leading provider of robotic-assisted surgery systems. Um, and again, just coming back to the valuation point, um, I think we're at a really interesting uh, inflection point in healthcare right now because we've had so much innovation and we're continuing to see so much innovation. And yet, you know, last year, the entire biotech industry um, literally sold off uh, pretty much indiscriminately. Um, and so, you know, to put some numbers around that, the biotech industry is currently trading at more than 40% less than its 10-year average. Um, and then maybe one last fun fact for you, um, you know, 18% of smaller cap biotech companies are currently trading at market caps that are less than the amount of cash on their balance sheet, which is the, the highest level, you know, in history. Well, and I'll mention for listeners, so the two categories you just covered, tech, the Goldman Sachs ETF there is the future tech leaders equity ETF, ticker GTEC. And then on the healthcare side, the future healthcare equity ETF, ticker GDOC. And Marissa, we just have a couple of minutes left here. As I look at the other three actively managed thematic ETFs that uh, Goldman Sachs offers, there's the Future Consumer Equity ETF, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. So ticker there is GBuy. I actually covered e-commerce and the outlook for the consumer earlier in the uh, the podcast. There's also the Future Planet Equity ETF, ticker mm -hmm. GSFP, and then the Future Real Estate and Infrastructure Equity ETF, ticker GREI. Before I let you go, I mean, any quick thoughts on, on any or all of those? Yeah, sure. Um, so let me, ta let me tackle them one by one um, quickly. So uh, GBuy, the future consumer, um, you know, one of the things that we're watching very closely in the consumer space is how demographics is changing consumer ha uh, habits. So there are nearly 5 billion people around the world today under the age of 40. And these people, particularly those in the kind of 20 to 40 age group, the millennials, earn more money in aggregate than any other generation. And this is really driving changes in consumption patterns because they basically consume differently uh, to older generations. So, you know, two things here. They've grown up as, as digital natives, so they're used to using technology and everything they do. Uh, and secondly, they, they just care about different things. So they have different lifestyles and values. And so in our future consumer ETFs, 
Um, you know, we are uh, really looking for companies that are on the right side of these themes. Um, so, for example, a, a CTS at Ventum, uh, which is a, a German company that organizes concerts and, and does online ticketing. Um, and then, uh, and like an Ulta Beauty, which is, um, you know, the American um, chain of beauty stores. Um, the uh, Future Planet ETF, GSFP, um, this is a very exciting. Here we're investing in clean tech companies um, that are developing innovative solutions to environmental problems, uh, spanning all sorts of things across, you know, renewable power and energy storage to electric vehicles, uh, which, of course, have, have become even more attractive as, as gas prices um, have risen, risen so much. Um, and, you know, we're getting invested in, in the whole uh, EV ecosystem. Uh, and then also technologies that improve uh, energy efficiency in buildings. Uh, which, again, is, is something that's top of mind right now, uh, you know, as the world kind of grapples with um, uncertain uh, energy supply issues. And then finally, GREI, uh, this uh, ETF invests in real estate and infrastructure companies that may be beneficiaries of, um, you know, any or all of the themes that we've just been talking about. So whether it's, you know, the telecom towers and the data centers that benefit from tech proliferation and, you know, people moving work, workloads up to the cloud um, or, you know, logistics companies that are benefiting from the growth of e-commerce, as you mentioned, and kind of getting, you know, the box from A to B. Well, Marissa, fantastic insight this week. I just find this this whole area of thematics to be highly intriguing. Clearly, you know this space inside <laughs> and out. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. That was Marissa Ansel, Lead Client Portfolio Manager for Thematic Investing at Goldman Sachs Asset Management. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Amplify ETFs, if you would like to learn more about Amplify ETFs, you can visit AmplifyETFs.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Matt Collins, head of ETFs at PGIM Investments, who some people may not realize they have a $4 billion ultra-short bond ETF. So we'll discuss that. And then FactSet's Elizabeth Kashner will highlight the latest trends in ETF fees. Should be interesting. Until then, have a great week, everyone.